Hey, this is Zach Catanzaro. And I'm Walker Lukens. We're the hosts of Song Confessional, the only podcast where today's top songwriters turn your anonymous stories into original songs. This week, we've got a salacious tale of train platforms and anonymous hookups. Austin songstress Buffalo Hunt transforms the confession into a cinematic indie pop gem, exploring the dark pleasures of our bad decisions. Listen to Song Confessional at KUTX.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. From KUT and KUTX Studios. Welcome to This Song, the podcast where artists talk about the songs that changed their lives and give us a glimpse into their creative process. I'm your host, Elizabeth McQueen, and in this episode of This Song, we'll hear from Greg Gonzalez, who is the bass player for the Austin band Brownout. But before I get started, I want to let you know that this Friday we'll be releasing a special This Song episode featuring John Cusack. He's coming to Austin next Friday, June 15th, to Bass Concert Hall to screen High Fidelity and then do a Q&A afterwards with our own Susan Castle. And it should be awesome. You can find the details at qtx.org. And I got to talk to him a bit in advance of the show. And like, I'm 41, so you know I have some serious teenage John Cusack associations happening. But I pretty much held it together, which you'll be able to hear on Friday. And if you're not already a subscriber to this podcast, go ahead, become one. And that way you will get John Cusack's episode delivered right to you as soon as it comes out. And while you're subscribing... Well, you might as well leave a rating or a review for this podcast. So double thanks in advance. So now, Greg Gonzalez. He is the bass player for Austin's Brownout. Well, actually, he plays bass in a lot of Austin bands that are all like overlapping in some ways. Group of Phantasma, Money Chicha. They all kind of have a scene unto themselves. But for this episode, we'll be talking about his work in Brownout. Brownout plays music that blends funk and Latin music and psychedelic influences. And like, basically, they put it all together and they make music that makes you want to move. As a band, they backed artists like Jizza and Prince while consistently putting out cool records, some of which have been of originals and some of which are covers of other people's music. In 2016, they put out Brown Sabbath, a record of Black Sabbath covers. And just last week, they released Fear of a Brown Planet, which is a collection, yes, of public enemy covers. Greg came into KUTX, the radio station where we make this podcast, and told me about a public enemy song that truly changed his life. I grew up on the border, mainly in Laredo, Texas, but also in Brownsville and Harlingen and a little town called Olmito and Los Fresnos. Down there, you had Tejano music. You had Mexican regional music, Norteño. Ya está cerrada con tres candados. a lot of top 40 stuff and uh around the time i was coming of age heavy metal so i listened to a lot of heavy metal my first 
music that I bought was Metallica, as well as whatever was on the radio, corny stuff like Def Leppard or whatever. Uh, heavy metal appealed to me. It appealed to my angry teenage side. It appealed to the fact that they were saying and talking about things that were taboo. Through the natural course of things, I discovered Public Enemy through Anthrax. You know, I had the uh, Attack of the Killer Bees EP, which featured their version of Bring the Noise with Public Enemy, and I was blown away by it. I love the song. You know, I got introduced to music through MTV, and I saw the video with Anthrax and Public Enemy, and then from there I started checking out Public Enemy, and I didn't really understand where they were coming from, but, you know, it appealed to me. Bring the noise! I wasn't a huge fan, though, you know, from the get-go, I, I suppose. It wasn't until one day in eighth grade or ninth grade, I was in PE class, and a friend of mine sitting behind me was wearing a Public Enemy hat. And I was like, hey, man, Public Enemy, those guys are cool. You know, uh, I like that song they did with Anthrax. And he was like, oh, man, Public Enemy is great. You know, they have the best bass lines. And this really piqued my interest, because here I am, a budding bass player. I've been playing, you know, for like two years on this beat-up, two-stringed thing that I found in my brother's closet. And I was like, oh, yeah. And he was like, yeah, man, their bass lines are really cool. They're all James Brown stuff. And I was like, you know, somehow this clicked for me. I was like, okay, I need to discover James Brown. I need to understand these bass lines that are so cool so that I can be a good bass player. So finding James Brown really changed my life. Everybody over there, get on up. Everybody right there, get into it. Everybody right there, get involved. Everybody get sudden i was no longer quite as obsessed with cliff burton heavy metal i became obsessed with bootsy collins and james brown you know uh and p-funk and all these funk artists and i started listening to hip-hop in a sense uh looking for bass lines looking for funk artists you know in a very strange roundabout way bring the noise by public enemy with anthrax turned me on to james brown Thing and dance to you, sing it now. 
going to James Brown's funk is like the Rosetta Stone of funk. You know, it's like, oh, this is the key to all the other stuff. Now I understand all the popular music I've been hearing that that piqued my interest in why. You know, you didn't recognize that there was something called funk. You just recognized that this certain song that you hear on the radio really caught your attention, you know, or the Red Hot Chili Peppers or or the Beastie Boys. You know, it's strange how, you know, you come across these things and then they push you in a direction, you become obsessed and it changes your life. One, two, three, four. Get up, get on up. Get up, get on up. Stay on the scene. Get on up like a sex machine. Get on up. What was it about funk that was so compelling to you when you were a kid? That's a that's a tough one to explain, I guess. I mean, for one, as a bass player, I realized that there was so much more that a bass could do. And in funk music, like in reggae, uh, as another example, it's just so integral to the melodic structure of the song. You know, it, it's... It provides so much more information and plays such a key role in the song. Hit it. Oh, how you feel, brother? Feeling good. You feel good? Feeling good. It's There's so much bone, brother. How you feel, man? I feel all right. I call your name. I don't want no people to know you're in here. How you feel, fella? Hey, yeah. Before that, I was listening to like heavy metal, and you know, uh, bass was basically just like doubling what the guitar was doing in like a in a more simple lower way or something you know and i thought that's what the bass did you know uh later on i discovered like led zeppelin and stuff and i was like okay this is a little bit more you know activity a little bit more melodic the bass fulfilled more of a role than just you know reinforcing what the guitar was doing but then when i heard funk it became its own thing it was like the bass stands on its own and and creates sort of this uh central pillar that's holding up the entire house you know and that really appealed to me uh not to mention that it was just fun and it was different. It was, it had a, a freedom that I didn't hear in other music, you know, uh, that I had been exposed to at the time. It didn't seem as uptight. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Originally, I wanted to play drums. I I begged my parents, and they were like, "No, you're not going to stick with it, and you're going to make a lot of noise. And it's we're not going to buy all that stuff for you. Forget about it." You know, I heard the drummers playing in the band in high school, and I just really wanted to do that. And when they told me I couldn't do that, I lost all interest. I was like, "Well, I don't want to play any of those honky-sounding things that people put in their face and blow on. That's just corny, you know." Uh, and to me, that's all there was, you know. Later on, when I moved to Laredo, back from uh, the lower Rio Grande Valley, I didn't know very many people, and I was looking for purpose, and I was looking for camaraderie, and I uh, I met Beto Martinez, uh, who's the guitar player in Brownout and Grupo Fantasma and Money Chicha, and, uh, you know, 
he wanted to be in a Metallica cover band. He had a guitar and he was like, yeah, man, uh, I got this friend who wants to play drums. All he needs is a bass player. And I was, I remembered my brother had a bass in his closet that he never played that had two rusty strings left on it. And that I think he had shot with a gun at one point because there was a bullet hole in it uh, or somebody shot it with a gun and it was just there discarded and forgotten. I was like, I can play bass. I have a bass. So I pulled it out and because I had no distractions, I had no friends or social life, and I was going through the crisis of being a 13-year-old boy, you know, I poured all of my frustration and energy into it, and it pulled me through some really tough times. So you're doing this uh, album full of Public Enemy covers. And Public Enemy, though, did not have a live band, obviously. Like, they worked with, like, samples upon samples, and Mm -hmm. they had a production crew. So what's it like to translate, not only to, like, play hip-hop covers without having an MC, Mm -hmm. but to also translate heavily sampled music into something that you can perform with a live band? Well, um... Public Enemy does have a live band now, but you're correct. At the time of their peak, the time that we were trying to recreate, they didn't have a live band. But the way they created their music was very much like a live band in the sense that uh, technology wasn't where it is now. You know, they had very uh, acute limitations on what they could sample as far as the length of the samples and their ability to align them. You know, it's not like now where you can just grab clips in your computer and line them up and the computer does the algorithmic computations or whatever and all of a sudden everything links up and you're like, I put this thing together. No, back then it was like somebody played the record and you had to capture that sample perfectly and it might be a little bit off, you know? And then you'd have to capture the next sample and it might be a little bit off and so on and so forth until you had this assemblage of buttons each assigned to a different sample, sometimes from different songs, sometimes with different levels of swing, different grooves, different tempos, occasionally different keys. And additionally, each sampling device that they used had different quirks about it. It might incorporate some sort of, uh, you know, artifacts, meaning like digital sound, or or it might uh, disturb the actual sound of the song a certain way, you know, stretching it or displacing parts of it or adding noise, you know. And then when they performed the songs, that they were recording, it was actually a performance. You had a bunch of guys triggering different parts of the song by pushing the buttons. It was like a drum circle in a sense, where everybody's playing a drum, but each drum is a sample. Flavor Flav, for instance, was a a drummer. So they would get him to play the drum parts. He would be triggering the drum loop, you know, uh, in time. And someone else would be triggering the bass loop along with him. Someone else would be triggering the guitar sample and the other sample. And maybe somebody would be scratching along in, in real time. And because of that, it was very much a performance. They weren't looking at a grid where they could line everything up. They were going to tape. Uh, back back in the 80s and early 90s. So as they're doing it, there may have been some little flubs, some little mistakes. They might have had to go back and do stuff over again. It was a very organic process of assemblage. 
and to me this is like one of the elements of hip-hop that appealed to me early on and which i think is really beautiful thing about it that no other style of music can really do which is you know taking time capsules of different moments and combining them in the present you end up with something that sounds unlike anything else. And then to try and reinterpret that, obviously is super challenging. tried to do or essentially was to make it like if public enemy had had a band like if they had come up with this song and then said hey we want y'all to do this you know and then the band was trying to interpret it you know we weren't trying to sound like samples per se or capture ourselves in that way it would have been too complicated and too difficult to do so instead it's we wanted to treat it like these were our sketches to go off of you know we wanted to get all the main elements that were there and reference the kind of edge that the music already had the abrasiveness and the the kind of rough around the the edges sort of quality that it had but we wanted it to sound like we recorded a live band in one take like it was a song and not an assemblage For you, was it like, was it exciting to to play those bass lines that you'd heard when you were so young and like kind of opened up the whole James Brown thing? <laughs> yeah, playing this sort of stuff is like as close to the root of what I what inspired me to begin with. You know, it's like laying down this groove, not thinking about lyrics or changes or anything. You know, just like finding that little pocket and staying there and just really feeling that moment over and over again and getting kind of in a trance you know that was the 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 first appeal of playing bass to me was just that little tranced out space you get to that's almost like a meditation you know you have to stay present and mindful in, in this moment but it, so that you can stay focused and consistent uh, but at the same time because there's not a lot of you know wiggly finger bits or changes you know it, it involves kind of calming your mind and, and blocking out other things. You know, it's a very meditative sort of feeling, and it, it feels very free when you get into that special place. is Brownout's version of Public Enemies by the time I get to Arizona from Fear of a Brown Planet. And I like the full circle journey that Greg took with this, right? Like from Anthrax to Public Enemy to James Brown and then back around to Public Enemy via Brownout. It's pretty sweet. 
If you want to get deeper into the brownout perspective on Public Enemy, then you should check out their MyKUTX guest DJ set. Guitarists Adrian Casada and Beto Martinez, yes, the same Beto that Greg started his first band with, well, they delve into some of their favorite Public Enemy tunes, as well as the songs that Public Enemy pulled their samples from. And if you want even more insight into Brownout, well, a while back, I talked to their guitar player, Adrian Casada for this podcast, and he talked about how influenced he was by 90s hip-hop. I'll post a link to the MyKTX guest DJ set and Adrian's interview on the show notes page for this episode. And like, seriously, if you liked this episode and these conversations, we have lots more, over a hundred. You can find our full archive on our website or iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to see Brownout, well, you're in luck. They're heading out on tour for the latter half of June. So I will post a link to their tour dates on the show notes page for this episode at KUTX.org. And that's it. You have come to the end of another episode of this song. This song is a production of 98.9 in Austin, Texas. This episode was produced by Art Levy and me, Elizabeth McQueen. Kelly Seal is our excellent intern, and thanks to Deidre Gott and Peter Babb and Todd Callahan for all they do for this podcast. And yes, it's true. Our theme song is Mahout by Austin's own Hard Proof. Right on. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time. KUT's next AT Explained Live show is April 3rd. Brand new stories about Austin's people, places, and culture told live on stage by your favorite KUT journalists. I've never gotten any specific invites from Steiner Ranch. And that's about the time Charlie chomped down on that chicken. I will hypnotize you into securing my law services. Join us April 3rd at the Paramount Theater for KUT's next AT Explained Live. Tickets are on sale now. Get them at austintheater.org. And we'll see you there.